Well, good morning. We continue this morning with our series on our new theological vision here at New St. Peter's. And if you were here last week, you'll know we began with the first of our four core values, worship. This week we look at the second of our core values, calling. This is the idea that on the road with Jesus, he's given each of us, his disciples, particular callings. And as we disperse from one another each week, we don't cease to be the church. But instead, we're sent out into our neighborhoods and as ambassadors of truth and love in every sphere of life. Excuse me. It's better. If we get together to worship on Sunday, we must then scatter throughout the week where God has placed us. If we breathe in the rest that we talked about last week, we must breathe out the rest of the week. As we look at this value of calling in this life on the road with Jesus, we'll again look at his own words. Uh, Again, a very familiar passage. This time in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Young worshipers with us this morning, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. He says, let your light shine before others. So my question for you is, why? Why does Jesus say to let your light shine before others? Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the living and active word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come once again to your word, I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We're seeking your grace. Lord, help us to see the vision and purpose you have for us as your disciples. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine something this morning. Imagine you're at the Dallas Children's Theater. Not a difficult start. But imagine you're here for a performance. And imagine the lights are dark, the show is just starting, and then it's opening night, somebody pulls you out of your seat, pushes you right onto center stage. How would you feel? I mean, most of us would be feel terrified, our, our stomachs would drop through the floor, we'd be thinking, first, how did I get here? Second, what do I say? What do I do? I'm not prepared for this. What are my lines? If we're honest, sometimes the Christian life can feel a lot like that. Because we're here worshiping on Sundays and and see God's grace, we know how to worship. But then we're thrown out into the rest of our lives. If last week we saw the rest that is ours in worship, many of us wonder, how exactly then do I live in the unrest that is the rest of my life? What does our faith look like beyond these doors? Or does it mean something just beyond our Sunday morning? We know that it does. But we also know we're not meant to live this double life of it matters here and it doesn't matter there, or it doesn't matter there, but we also have a sneaking suspicion that it's not being so obnoxious about our faith that we actually prevent people from coming to see who God is. We know we need some sort of nuanced living. Yet we also know we're constantly pulled to be more like everyone around us. Or we have another hard temptation to become Christian isolationists, to leave everything and everyone and just kind of turn on or in on ourselves and make sure we're okay. You see, as Christians, 
we so often don't know our lines. Well, maybe we've forgotten them if we've learned them in the first place. We've forgotten or we don't know what we're meant to do in the complex world we live in of relationships, work, family, school, sports, responsibilities. Or digging deeper, we might know what our lives should look like and what our lines are. But whether it be through fear, anxiety, sloth, or pride, we don't live these things out. But here, towards the beginning of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, he gives us our lines. He tells us how to live in his kingdom in light of who he is. He says we're meant to be salt and light. We're called to be salt, a flavorful preservative. And we're called to be light, a facilitating presence. So first, we're called to be salt, a flavorful preservative. Look at Christ's words here at the beginning of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Before we go any further, it's probably helpful to note that you might have heard this phrase before. You might have heard somebody called the salt of the earth. Maybe you've heard it said about somebody and, and oh yeah, that's a really salt of the earth type guy or type gal. And when we hear that, somebody is meaning, what, what, they're, they're meaning that they're good, that they're decent, they're honorable, they're not too ostentatious. And that's helpful to kind of have in our minds, but what does Christ actually mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? Well, what does salt do? If we think in our day and age, I think we primarily think about flavor. But what did those in Jesus' day think of when they heard the word salt? And just as a side note, when we come to our Bible, so often we need to understand back then when this was written before we understand what it means now. You see, for them, the major use of salt was in preservation. It kept meat and other foods from going bad. Of course, there was no refrigerators back then or flash freezing, so they would just pack things with salt. And scientifically speaking, what salt would do is provide a barrier to moisture, which would keep food dry and then prevent decay that way. And as a result, food lasted longer, but a side consequence, salt would give the preserved food a distinct flavor. Even now as I talk about salt, you're probably thinking of something salty that you've had recently, or something salty you're going to have this afternoon. Interestingly enough, this isn't the first time we see salt in the Bible. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 2 and Ezekiel 43, we see commands to actually salt the sacrifices of the people of Israel. What did that mean? Well, because salt was a preservative, it meant permanence. And so Christ had them salt their sacrifices to say, this is my permanent covenant with you. It doesn't go away. So Jesus here in the New Testament calls his people collectively, you plural, are the salt of the earth. Those in Christ's kingdom are called to prevent decay in the world to keep away the decay of evil, and as a consequence, give things a distinct flavor. Paul in Colossians takes, this up, takes up this idea when he says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our speech should have a flavor of preservation, a flavor of wisdom and grace to those that, are, that were around. And that's not to say it's easy to be salt. In fact, in the context of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has just said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's not saying this is an easy calling. He's not saying there's not going to be persecution. Actually, quite the opposite. But the world needs us to be salt. And light. You see, Jesus assumes that there's evil and decay in the world, and so there needs to be preservation. 
And he goes on in the second part of verse 13, look with me. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt is very useful and helpful in preservation, but if it's not salty, then it has no use as salt. Now, for you chemists out there, yes, pure salt can't lose its saltiness, but that's not what he's talking about. Back then, the salt they would have would have been mixed with other compounds, and so actually the salt could be leached away. So salt for them could lose its saltiness. And Jesus says, unsalty salt has no use except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What a strong statement that is. This phrase here, loses its saltiness, is one word in the original Greek. The word means to become tasteless or insipid, and yet the verb in other contexts means being foolish. So contrast the wise and gracious seasoned with salt speech toward outsiders with foolishness, those who actually bring decay into the world rather than preserving the world from decay. So Christians are clearly called to be salt, a flavorful preservative. I was reminded of what this might look like by, uh, by one of our members, Chevis Ligon, who told me about Covenant Transport, a, a Christian trucking company started by a Christian couple and, and wanting to do things well and differently. And so most trucking companies occasionally will get into litigation because of accidents and insurance and those type of things. And, and what Chevis has told me is that most of the time they go to mediation. One side will say, because of this, we want $5 million. And the other side will say, hey, how about 50000 And so there will be this haggling. You'll go back and forth, and eventually you'll find some number. You're trying not to give as much as you can, and you're trying to get as much as you can. And that's, that's how it goes. But he said when, when he started to work with them, a, a plaintiff's attorney was meeting with a group of lawyers, and he was on the call, and, and the plaintiff's attorney said, these covenant guys are Christians. And Chevis said some of the lawyers actually laughed in that call. And he said, no, no, really, they'll pay to make things right. You see, Chevis has told me what they do is, if they're in the wrong, they will admit their fault. And they'll say, this is exactly what it's worth, and we'll give you that price. They're not going to lowball you and just try to work your way up and try to not give as much as they can. It's actually, if we're in, the, we're in the wrong, we'll admit it. We'll actually pay to make things right. We're not going to overpay. We're not going to get trampled on, but we'll make things right. And, and he actually told me it's refreshing. It's so different than any other time this happens. That's a way of being salt. Because not only do you have a distinct flavor of something different that people want and actually learn to crave, but also you're preventing decay. You're confessing your sin. You're being honest. You're showing people a different way. That's what it can look like to be salt. So how, how are we, how, how can we be salt in the world? How can we be a flavorful preservative against decay? Well, from the start, as we saw, what makes salt effective is its very saltiness. We aren't meant to lose our distinction as Christians. It's actually what the world needs. And this means we will be distinct at times. It, will, it means we'll be persecuted at times, as Jesus says. But we must be distinct in the way we live. Think, for example, about speech, something we've been talking about a little bit uh, today. What are our words like? Whether words in person or words online. Do our words prevent decay because they're gracious and wise? Or do they actually promote it? Even our speech about God himself, if it's ungracious and unwise, doesn't actually honor him. Even speaking about God, we can fall into speaking like the world and lose our very distinction. And beyond speech, everyone around us, everything around us, there's a temptation to lose our distinction. But then we also have to ask, how individually in my calling 
Can I prevent decay and be distinct? Well, it's the teacher who lovingly and creatively engages her students, making learning enjoyable and rewarding to them, leading them on a path of lifelong learning. It's the doctor who treats their patients as humans with individual stories, anxieties, and fears. But it's also the truck driver who plays a vital role in preserving our infrastructure and supply chain, faithfully and safely doing his duty. It's the mother who lovingly cares for her children, teaching them and bringing them up with the father in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And yes, parents, it's changing dirty diapers. That prevents decay in the world. As silly as it might seem, it's true. Students, you choose to do the hard work of studying rather than taking the easy route of cheating. You speak differently than those around you, right? And you show them something different. You give them a taste for what life could be. And it's not just in these very specific callings, but in all the places we are, we're called to be salt. On the sidelines, in the grocery store when we're in a long line at the checkout, when we're driving on 635, what does it look like to be a flavorful preservative against decay and not bring our decay into the world? And it also means considering the job that we have. Where has God told us to prevent decay? You see, if we're in a job that actually tells us to promote decay, we should think about actually doing something different. As hard as it might be to transition, we need to see where has God gifted us and where can we push back against the evil in the world. But you see, Jesus doesn't just give us one picture. He also calls us to be light. He calls us to be a facilitating presence. Look back at Christ's words, this time starting in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He now calls his people collectively the light of the world. He compares them to a city set on a hill. And the Jews would have certainly seen an allusion to the city of Jerusalem, a city we heard prophesied about in the Old Testament. Because Jerusalem was supposed to be a city where the Jews would gather together and then would go out into the nations. And eventually the nations would see that light and gather into Jerusalem themselves. And yet, the closest city on a hill to the Sermon on the Mount was a Roman fortress. So you have these contrasting views of a city on a hill. And Jesus is actually saying, you, not some physical city, you are the kingdom of heaven set on a hill for the world to see. He goes on, verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. We know the purpose of light. It's a little bit easier than thinking through the purpose of salt. We know the purpose of light, to see. We know it's foolish to put a basket over a lamp. It is also, though, helpful to know something about their context. Because you see, the houses in that area especially needed light. They were made of this dark, dull, basalt stone that wouldn't give you any light. So you needed something. And again, Jesus then is assuming that there's a need in the world. Just like we need preservation because there's decay, we need light. Because there's darkness. And so light has an essential job. It shouldn't be covered up. Even when it's difficult. I'm reminded of, of the words of somebody who wrote about this very call to be light in the darkness. In the very difficult place of late 1930s Germany. This is what one Christian said. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. This was Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he would eventually give his life for his faith. Jesus goes on in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Those in Christ are called to let our light shine before men. What is this light? Well, the verse tells us it's these good works. It's righteous living. Now, why? Why do we do this? Young worshipers, why do we let our light shine before others? What does it say? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, it's not the glory that's given to the good deed doers, but it's actually glory given to God, who, as we'll see, is the very source of our light. So we're called to be light, a a presence in the world that facilitates people giving glory to God. When I think about this idea of darkness, believe it or not, I think about my high school bedroom. Because we had a basement, and under the stairs we had this big storage closet that we turned into a bedroom, and that's that's where I lived. And because it was in the basement and it was around under the stairs, no natural light would get in. Nothing. So if I was in there with the light off, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. So I had this ritual every morning. I would always do the same thing because if I didn't, I was going to run into something. My, my, corner was in the, or my bed was in the corner of the room, and I didn't have an alarm clock. I just had this watch that I put on my dresser, so it didn't give any light. But as soon as the watch would go off, because if it didn't go off, I could sleep until noon. But if the watch would go off, I would wake up, turn my head to the left, and turn off my watch. Because to the right was, was my wall. Every day, turn up, or get up, turn the head to the left, every day. And one day, I get up, I turn my head to the right, and just smack my head against the wall. And all I wanted to do was just go to sleep. I was like, my day's over, this is it, right? But that's the problem with being in darkness. You can't see. You're going to run into things. And Christ is saying, the people of the world are in darkness. They need light. Which also means we can't expect somebody living in darkness to live as if they have the light. We're called to be the light of the world to them. So how can we do that? How can we be a facilitating presence? Well, first it means that we can't and we shouldn't hide our faith. Faith is meant to be lived out wherever we are, however difficult it is. Where are you tempted to put a basket over your faith? What situations make you as Christians want to run in the other direction? Or what's your basket? How do you disengage and downplay your faith where God is calling you to be a light in the world? This also means that we should be careful with our light. Jesus says, give light to the world so they might see rather than shining it in eyes so as to blind. It's also important that how we live as light is not going to look the same Christian to Christian. It's going to look different, and sometimes in ways that may even seem at odds with one another. Dr. Dan Doriani, a professor and mentor of mine, has an excellent book on work, simply called Work, and I highly recommend it to you. But in that book, he points out there are biblical examples of people with different callings that might even seem contradictory. For example, Joseph serves a pharaoh in Egypt and saves Israel and his sons. Moses doesn't serve a pharaoh in Egypt and saves Israel from slavery. Now you might point out, well, those are different pharaohs, so maybe it's a little different. Well, what about in 1 Kings? Elijah doesn't serve Ahab and calls the people to repentance and obedience, and there's drought. But then a man of God, Ahab, or sorry, excuse me, a man of God, Obadiah, does serve Ahab, and because he serves Ahab, he's actually able to preserve 100 prophets in the time of drought. Those might seem contradictory callings, but both of them are able to be lights where God has placed them. So where has God placed you? We ought to reflect on our various callings and ask God, prayerfully consider, how can we help people see his glory? 
And that's another important reminder that, that our, our good deeds aren't for our own glory. The goal is not for somebody to say, what a good person you are, but rather, what a great God he is. And one of the ways we can see a distinction is if we confess our sin. Because if we don't confess our sin, then people are going to think we're really, really good and actually are perfect. And that's not what we're about. But actually through confession, that's one of the ways that people see God's glory. If we can admit our faults, then they must know we have some way by which to do that. How can we be faithful? Yes, and in our faithfulness, point actually away from ourselves. That that God would increase and that we would decrease, as John the Baptist said. This passage also assumes that we're going to encounter people that are in darkness, that need the light of faith. I'm reminded of a passage in 1 Corinthians 5 when, when Paul is talking about people who are living unrighteously inside the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. See, Paul is assuming you're not going out of the world anytime soon. But there are people here that you need to shine God's light to so they might see him and see his glory. And for some of us, it's not difficult to be in that darkness and non, with non-Christians. It happens all the time. You don't need to go looking for it. And yet, for others of us, it's very easy to do the opposite, to stay in our safe Christian bubble. And yet we're called to go out into the world. This is something I struggle with because of my job, finding ways to interact with non-Christians. We should prayerfully ask God where and how and to show us to be a light. And yet, even with what I've said being about being salt and light, there's still a problem. We've talked about the need for preservation and light in the world, that it's dark out there and full of decay out there. And if you're a non-Christian this morning, you might think, man, they think they're really good in here. But what about in here? What about in our church? What about in our hearts? Not only are we quick to to lose our saltiness and hide our light, but our very hearts are full of decay, corruption, and darkness. So what hope do we have about possibly being salt and light in this world? We see our hope comes not from ourselves, but from the very one who spoke these words in Matthew 5, our Lord Jesus. For though we were decayed, corrupt, and in darkness, he came to save us. Indeed, the chapter before, in Matthew chapter 4, the author says that Christ fulfills these words of the prophet Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Christ came for us, shining into the darkness. And yet he was trampled under our feet. We rejected him. He was unjustly put to death, crucified and buried. And yet in his death, he became the perfect, preserving sacrifice, showing the ultimate permanence of God's covenant love to us because he paid for our sins. He paid for the corruption and darkness in our hearts that we bring into the world. And as the song says, though the light of the world was by darkness slain, he burst forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And he gives to his people light and life, mercy and forgiveness, the gift of his preserving Holy Spirit, and a divine purpose for our lives in this world, no matter where we find ourselves. Because of what Christ has done, we're called to be salt and light. 
In closing, I'm reminded actually of the James Webb Telescope. I don't know how many people you have heard about that, but it's basically the bigger, better, cooler, older brother to the Hubble. And it's been out in space for about a year now, and what it does is it looks into deep space and gives us these beautiful images. The way that it works is there's 18 hexagonal mirrors made of a material called beryllium that reflect all of this light from deep space. And all of these mirrors are minutely adjusted so that together through them, we can see the beauty of the universe. We can see the cosmic cliffs. We can see nebula. We can see clusters of galaxies. And I encourage you, if you haven't, go search James Webb Telescope images because these things will make you praise our creator God for the beauty of what he's made. You see, these mirrors give us a taste of something bigger and better than ourselves. And these mirrors also reflect to us the light from far away, the glory of God's created order. Well, you see, as Christians, in the same way, we're meant to give those around us a taste of something better, something even better than ourselves, to reflect Christ's light. We're meant to give, reflect the light of the glory of God, not just the glory of creation, but the glory of what God has done. To reflect Christ's work in us for all the world to see. This is our purpose. These are our lines as Christians, to be salt and to be light. By his power, in his name, for his glory, because of what he has done, in all of our various callings that he has called us to. Until he returns again, and we have no need of sun or moon to be our light, for the glory of God shall be our light, and we will worship him forever. But until then, we are salt and light in his name because of the work of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would give us a zeal according to knowledge. Give us a knowledge, yes, of our need, but a knowledge of the abundant grace of Christ our Savior. Give us a knowledge and zeal on how to live out our faith. Lord, I ask that you would sanctify our imagination so that we might creatively engage you wherever you have placed us in the world. Help us to be salt and light, not because of ourselves, but because of what you have done. Would you work in us by your spirit for your glory and for our good. And do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.